Second Samuel chapter 11. If you'll join me there. We just went a few verses into chapter 11 last time as we really come to this rather low spot in King David's life. Probably one of the most grievous mistakes that David made as a man of God and yet the Bible is very honest with us. It doesn't gloss over or whitewash this mistake of David and really teaches us, I think, a lot of lessons in regards to how not to handle temptation in our lives to allow us to really remain sober in all of our own judgment regarding ourselves to realize that this is David, this lover of the Lord. You can't doubt David's love for the Lord. The Bible tells us God says he's a man after God's own heart and an incredibly spiritual man, but yet someone who, uh, with a failure to regulate at times his passions and gave in to some of his own weaknesses, made some pretty major mistakes in his life. And yet to see uh, in light of that how David ultimately comes to a place of repentance and even some of the wonderful fruit that comes out of that, some of the Psalms that we have, Psalm 51, Psalm 32, Psalms directly connected to these events in David's life after great failure and then ultimately a time of confession and repentance and restoration, how God still used David's life and still worked through him gives us great encouragement that despite great failures we may go through at times, that God doesn't shelf us, he doesn't set us aside or cast us away, that if we're willing to have a broken and a contrite spirit before the Lord, that he's able to forgive and show grace and mercy and work through our lives still ultimately. And as we come to the section we do this evening, as we pick up in chapter 11, verse 6, and move forward, uh, really the lesson that we begin to see here is the vital importance in regards to when we have sinned or when we have failed that the most important thing for us to do is to deal with our sin quickly and to deal with our sin biblically uh, which means that we should not cover it up we shouldn't try and hide it we shouldn't try and hold back that, that we've done what we have, and, but we should instead embrace it and take ownership. And the sooner we do that, the much better it results for us. And the longer that we wait to do that, because it will ultimately always come out. We know that. Uh, everything ultimately comes to the light. It's a foolish deception. We are not deceiving anyone else other than ourselves when we sin or we commit error and we try and hide it and cover up for a time. We're just deceiving ourselves because ultimately it, it's going to come out to the light anyway. And the sooner that we take ownership of those things and confess and repent, the better because covering sin never works. And this is the great mistake that we see David making here and certainly lessons that we can learn from it for our own lives at times when we may fail or perhaps maybe if we have failed uh, and maybe we haven't dealt with that sin biblically in our life, perhaps tonight's an encouragement from the Holy Spirit to deal with it biblically uh, and to spare yourself some of the grief maybe that you can add to it as a compounding problem as we'll see happens with David's life here. Now let's just refresh our memory. We looked at it last time and talked about it by way of sort of gleaning some lessons but verses 1 to 5 describe to us the moral failure of David here of adultery. Uh, it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 5, it happened in the spring of the year. At that time when kings go out to battle, David should have been occupied in what God had him to be occupied in, but his idleness led to problems. It says, David sent Joab and the servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. He was in the wrong place and ultimately, he therefore ended up doing the wrong thing. And when we're where we're not supposed to be, we set ourselves up to be vulnerable, to do things that we're ultimately not supposed to do. And it happened as the result of those factors. We talked about them. One evening, David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Great enticement and temptation now. And David, his great mistake, sent and inquired about the woman. So he pressed forward even in the face of temptation. The Bible tells us to flee from temptation. One, one instruction we're given in the Bible, it says flee 
youthful lust. So when temptation comes knocking at our door, we, we don't ask who's on the other side, who is it? We don't inquire. The best thing that we should do is keep the door locked and run out the back door and get as far away as we can. And this is David's great mistake here. He begins to flirt with, if you would, temptation, maybe thinking he could handle playing with temptation. And that works about as good as playing with a book of matches. Uh, Ultimately, it causes great forest fires with pain and injury and devastation. And this is what happens because David inquired about her and the answer came back. Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Iliam, and the key statement, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David, uh, knock, knock, this is someone else's wife. You already not only have a wife, you have multiple wives. This is now someone else's wife that you're inquiring about, that you're interested in. But David sent messengers, here's the mistake, verse 4, and took her. He selfishly indulged, walked face you know, eyes wide open, face forward right into this sin. And she came to him. He lay with her. They had sexual relations for she was cleansed from her impurity. And then verse five, of course, the consequence of that wrong sexual sin, the woman conceived. And so she sent and told David, I am with child. So now David has a dilemma on his hands. Not only has David failed morally, not only has David sinned and understand the child itself is not sin. The sexual morality that was the sin. Uh, the, the child is just the outcome, the natural outcome, the sowing and the reaping. And so it's important that we recognize that. But David has a real dilemma on his hands now because he's committed adultery. He slept with someone else's wife and his sexual sin now brings a very big consequence that is unavoidable. Because how now is he going to deal with in a matter of time Bathsheba is going to begin to start showing that she's pregnant and her husband Uriah is off on the battlefield. So questions are going to clearly begin to arise. Evidence is going to begin to come forth. Well, isn't it interesting? A number of us saw this visitation one night when uh, somehow Bathsheba ended up in the palace. It's not like no one knew about it. David sent messengers to inquire. So there were other people involved. And now all of a sudden she's beginning to show that she's pregnant. So David begins to, at this point, have a a, a real choice on his hands. Either he can keep short accounts with God and he could quickly respond, no doubt, to what was going on in him, like it does in all of our lives, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. David, what you just did was wrong. It was wrong. And you know it's wrong. And David, the best thing you could do at this moment, the same thing the Holy Spirit testifies to all of us, is blow the horn on yourself. Is instantly take ownership of it. Acknowledge what you've done. Yes, there will be consequences. There always is to any poor mistakes that we make. That's just part of life for all of us. But David, if you take ownership of it now and acknowledge it, Things ultimately will work out a lot better in the long run. And David could have taken ownership right then and there for what he did, confessed and acknowledged and asked for forgiveness and mercy and tried to make the best of a poor decision that he had just made. But unfortunately, David does the opposite. David begins to work an effort of cover up. Verse six, we begin to see what he does as he tries to now cover his sin Rather than deal with this sin, David sent to Joab, his general on the battlefield, saying, send to me Uriah the Hittite. Remember, that was Bathsheba's husband. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. So here's David What he does now is he recognizes, I've got to come up with a plan. So he starts scheming. And this is what, unfortunately, we are very good at doing as human beings because we don't want to take responsibility for the guilt of our own wrong choices. And one of the bigger problems when we sin is our own sinfulness that makes us, rather than just take ownership of our sin and acknowledge, I messed up. I made a mistake. I did something wrong. Let me admit it and own it and and just deal with it. Instead, what we tend to do, it is our natural inclination to want to try and cover our sin. So what David's going to do here, we'll see, is he's going to try and invite Uriah back home from the battlefield and to encourage him to go home 
to have a night of visitation with his wife. He's a man on the battlefield away from his wife and he understands, well, certainly if he goes home and visits his wife, then they'll have relations. And then when she ends up being pregnant, it will just look like the child is hers and his. And basically, David would then just try and keep quiet. He'd basically just let Uriah the Hittite raise his child and would just act like that he had nothing to do with this. Now, again, was Bathsheba connected to this whole situation? I don't know. The Bible's silent. It's possible that they together were sort of thinking through, you know, what to do. All we're told in verse 5 is that she told David, I'm with child and pregnant. Uh, we don't know whether or not she was proposing solutions or schemes or whether David completely does this. The Bible only holds before us David, so we can't fault Bathsheba in this situation when the scripture's silent. It seems that this is just David doing this, and ultimately, the sad thing is Uriah wasn't just one of David's soldiers. You have to understand, he's one of David's officers, one of the officers in his army. So he sends for one of his officers. So you have to understand the peculiarness in verse 7. When Uriah comes from the battlefield, his general Joab says, the king wants to see you. And then he shows up at the king's palace and David, verse 7, begins to ask him. So by the way, how's Joab doing? How's the general doing? And how are the people doing? And how's the war coming along? Uriah automatically has to be thinking to himself, any common messenger could answer these questions. I mean, you could have picked the lowest ranking buck private and sent him back to David. In fact, at the end of the chapter, we're going to see that Joab does send just, the Bible calls it a messenger, just an unnamed messenger to come back and give news later on. So this is already peculiar. Why are you calling an officer off of the battlefield to ask just about how's the war going and how's everybody faring out on the battlefield. But nonetheless, Uriah, will see, he's a noble man. He's one of David's faithful, loyal officers in his military. And this makes it all the more sad that David has not only slept with a woman that was not his wife, he's done this to someone who actually is a close comrade of his. This is actually one of the officers in his own army. You want to talk about adding you know, insult to injury. This is actually someone who is someone on the battlefield fighting for David while he's sitting home in his palace. This is whose wife David has slept with. So verse 8, David says to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And that was a cultural way of saying, go in and relax. You would wash your feet if you were going to go in and be in for the night because they'd wear sandals. And as you were out and about, you would you know, incur dust and from the sweat that was on your feet and the dirt would get clumped to your feet. So at the end of the day, when you would go in and, and stay in, you would wash your feet. This was typical. So the implication here is go home, have an evening with your wife, wash your feet, he says. And as Uriah departed from the king's house, a gift of food from the king followed him. So, I mean, David's trying to really work the system here. He says, look, hey, I'm going to send home a, you know, a nice fruit basket and a nice gift of food and maybe a little, you know, a few extra items to just enhance the romance. So he'll go home, have a nice dinner with his wife. And then that evening they'll, you know, have sexual relations. And, and then when ultimately he goes back to the battlefield, it'll just be uh, somewhat, you know, seen as that somehow she got pregnant as the result of that night of visitation so david's got this whole scheme that he's working and again we begin to see in david which is not just something true of david listen it is true of all of us because what david is doing is just manifesting what happened initially in the garden of eden and that is it is our natural inclination please hear me our natural inclination to want to and to try to always cover our sin whenever i sin whenever you sin it will be your natural human inclination because of your sinfulness that we're bent we're depraved within your first inclination is always going to be to want to cover it and there's a part of that you have no control over it's genetically wired in you from the garden of eden do you remember when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord? And what did they do when, when all of a sudden they were exposed, their nakedness came to their awareness? It says they sewed fig leaves onto themselves trying to cover themselves. They were trying to cover their shame. Right away, they're trying to cover and hide what they've done. And from the Garden of Eden onward, it has always been the propensity of humanity that when we sin, 
we try and cover it up. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to admit it and acknowledge it. So David here falls prey to this human weakness and he's scheming now to try and cover and to hide what he's done. But look what happens. David encourages him, hey, go home. You've been out on the battlefield. You know, I want to bless you. Here's some, here's some food and just go home, spend a night with your wife, verse nine. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house together with all the servants of his Lord and he did not go to his house. So when they told David saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? He said, what's the matter with you, man? What, what are you thinking? I mean, what kind of man are you? I mean, you've been away on a journey out on the battlefield. I just gave you the privilege to go home and visit your wife and, and you sleep outside at the you know, gate area together with the palace guards and the fellow servants. And look what Uriah said, verse 11. Uriah answered David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives I will not do this thing so Uriah was a man of noble character I mean here he's afforded the opportunity to come home from the battlefield and to have a night off from combat and visit with his wife and to be able to you know, satisfy himself sexually, to enjoy an evening together with his wife. They've been separated for a long period of time during the battle. And this man's character is so noble. He denies his own personal desires and chooses to sleep outside where the king's palace guards are. And he doesn't even go home and visit with his wife because he basically says, listen, if everyone else is suffering and denying themselves and out on the battlefield, I'm not going to selfishly indulge myself and all my comrades and my general and all the king's servants are out on the battlefield until everyone's home from the battlefield. I'm not going to selfishly satisfy myself at the expense of everyone else. And boy, I have to tell you, when he said that and did that, you want to talk about some serious conviction had to come over David's heart? Because <laughs> here's this guy, he won't go home and visit his own legitimate wife and spend the night with his own legitimate wife after a, a time of separation of being on the battlefield. And yet here's David, he's got seven wives and he just slept with the guy's wife. And David must have been incredibly convicted at this point of the noble character of Uriah, as well as the fact, you have to understand, he's also very frustrated now. He's thinking, mm, that didn't work. Plan B now. Now again, here he has an opportunity again. Okay, he just tried to cover up his sin. Did God let it work? God frustrated it for him. Again, God's, just like we talked about when, when the word came back to David when, they, when he inquired about Bathsheba and the word came back, this is the wife of Uriah. In other words, here's the opportunity to embrace conviction and David blew past the warning sign. Once again, God doesn't let his work of cover-up be successful, but David just continues to press forward. So now he has to come up with plan B because plan A didn't work to cover his sin. So verse 12 says, David then said to Uriah, wait here today also. And tomorrow, he says, I will then let you depart. Take, take another day before you return back to the battlefield. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. So look what David does now. David says, okay, that didn't work too well. Uh, so I'll tell you what. How about you stick around one more night? Listen, I, I want to reward you. You've been working hard for me. I want to invite you to the palace tonight. You dine with me. Drink some of the royal wines and enjoy yourself because he's thinking, well, if I get him a little bit you know, inebriated and under the influence of alcohol, everyone's judgment's a little impaired and then maybe he won't be so firm in his moral convictions and his judgment will be impaired and then he'll just be a little more relaxed. And of course, we all do things that we wouldn't normally do when we're drunk. So look what it says there in verse 13. It literally says David made him drunk. David was purposely trying to get him drunk so he could take advantage of him in the situation. And can I just say, that is always a very horrendous thing. 
That is a sad thing to realize that there are times when people would actually try and make someone get drunk so they could take advantage of them. But nothing new under the sun. It happens. And so here David, he's trying to now get Uriah drunk so maybe he'll forget about these things and just go home and have a night. But again, look what happens. Verse 13, at evening, he went out and he lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Boy, again, plan B's foiled now. So now David's starting to get desperate because he's starting to realize, what am I going to do? This seemed like it would work so well. I mean, it just seemed... So now David, unfortunately, rather than again recognize what's going on, he starts to get desperate and he actually realizes, I only have one other option. I'm going to have to just eliminate this guy. I'm literally going to have to just basically get him killed. So David's now going to go from adultery to murder. And as you watch what unfolds here, realize this is a very good reminder that undealt with sin only grows. It only grows because now David's going to go from adultery and sexual sin to trying to cover his sin to ultimately basically murdering a man who's a completely innocent victim to basically just self-preserve and try and protect himself and hide his own sinful actions and what he's done. And so, good reminder to all of us that undealt with sin, it, it, it never just stays static. It just grows. It's like a snowball going down a hill and it just gains momentum and momentum and it leads to more sin, which ends up hurting more and more people. So now David, it says, verse 14 in the morning, wrote a letter to Joab, to the general, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in a letter saying, set Uriah in the front forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So David basically writes out this guy's death sentence. He sends a, a, a message to Joab, his general, and says, listen, no explanation needed. I'm the king. When Uriah comes back, I want you to advance in your attack and I want you to position Uriah at the hottest most dangerous part of the battle in the midst of combat and then he says when he's in that dangerous spot and his life is threatened then he says even retreat from him leave the guy hung out the dry so that ultimately he'll be put to death in the midst of battle and it'll just look like a battle casualty and, and think of this that message goes back by the hand of who Uriah Here's this guy. He's trusting his king. He's been loyal and faithful to his king. And David now is so selfishly manipulating the situation. He actually sends this guy back with his own death sentence in his own letter to go back to basically get himself put to death, basically murdered by a scheme and a plot of David here now further trying to cover up his wrongdoing. So it says, verse 16, so it was when Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there was valiant men, where there would be good fighters. The idea is, you know, Joab's a, he's a military general. He doesn't question the king's command. All he knows is, I don't know what happened, but David doesn't want Uriah to be in his army anymore. So maybe something happened. It's not my business, but my business is to follow the king's orders as his general. So he did exactly what David asked. He positioned Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle where there were valiant fighters and the men of the city, verse 17, came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. And Joab then sent and told David all the things concerning the war and he charged, notice, the messenger. That's all you needed to bring a message back. He charged the messenger saying, when you finish telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? In other words, that was a foolish way to engage in combat. You put yourself at risk. That was untypical. Did you not know that they would shoot at you from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerbesheth? Was it not a woman who just cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Jabez? Why then did you go near the wall? And he says, if this is what's happening and the king's starting to get upset and angry, why, why did you risk the lives of men and, and cause casualties among the troops? He says, you shall answer your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead 
also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field. And then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. And the archers shot from the wall at your servants. And some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now take notice there. Not just Uriah ended up being dead, but you see verse 24, and some of your king's servants are dead. Do you want to talk about the compounding effects of sin? David's sin, which he covered up, which now led to a, another sin, a more grievous sin. First sin was a sin of passion and the sexual sin and the adultery. This is now premeditated murder. And adding on top of that, as I said, how undealt with sin just grows and develops now it says multiple soldiers end up losing their lives not just Uriah multiple soldiers which means guess what that means that innocent other families don't have a daddy coming home to the children don't have a husband coming back from battle other men innocent men lost their lives as they were lumped together with Uriah there are soldiers in the battle and all of this is the compounding ripple effects of David's sin not being dealt with and him trying to hide what he did and make a cover-up of what's going on. It just caused more and more pain and the ripple effect of the problems here. So look, as the message comes back and he hears Uriah is dead, David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. In other words, David says, well, I mean, these things happen in battle. So tell Joab, no worries. I'm, I'm not upset with him. Hey, that was just an oversight. These kind of things happen in battle when you're engaging in the heat of the moment. And just appreciate the report and tell him to strengthen his attack and, and march forward. And then verse 26, look at this. And when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. There was probably a measure of legitimate grief here that would be about a week-long mourning period was typical and when her mourning was over after about seven days or so David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord so as Uriah is killed in battle and again at this point no one knows what's taken place other than David himself in this grand cover-up of his sin when a woman became a widow in that culture again we have to understand that put her at tremendous risk for survival uh, it put her life in jeopardy and her family in jeopardy so there was always the concern how is this widow going to survive that's why the Bible encourages caring for widows and orphans so look what David does here. Word comes back, one of his officer's wives, or one of his, uh, you know, one of his officers has died and the wife is now a widow. So David here in verse 27, after the mourning period, brings her to the palace, marries her, makes his become his, her become his wife, and basically what's he doing? He's trying to play the hero here. Oh, how noble of King David. I mean, one of his most valiant officers has died in battle and, and David in an act of compassion and mercy has now moved the wife of Uriah into the palace and he's married her and taken her to himself and he's now going to take care of her and, and make sure that she's okay and so forth and all the while here David's hypocritically acting like the hero and what he's doing is just following up with his scheme because it didn't work to get Uriah to go home and sleep with Bathsheba so he thinks well if I marry her quick and nobody does all the math and the calculations, then it'll just look like, well, after I married her, then we had normal relations and the baby's mine and whew, I think this actually is going to work, David's thinking. And in his mind, he's feeling like, I think I got everybody fooled here. I mean, this actually looks like it's all going to work out. And, and, and what he was hiding and not dealing with was something that it, on his level, looked like, okay, I think I made it work. And this is the tragedy where sometimes we buy into our own deception where we work hard and we work hard and we try and scheme and cover up and scheme and cover up and we actually are, are foolish enough to think sometimes that we actually are going to make it work. 
and that it's just never going to come out and we can just brush it under the rug and, and move on. But, but see, here's the thing. Certainly, we may be able to fool people, but we're never going to fool God. And that's why it says there at the end of verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord was fully aware of what David had done, and though he had covered it up himself, God was fully aware and nothing was hidden from his eyes. The Bible says that everything is naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this is the thing that David's forgotten here. Now, now let me just say something as, as you look at that you know, experience of David there. I have to imagine, let's say if Satan were to have come to David and to say to David, prior to all these events, David, listen, I got a proposal for you. I was thinking, would you be interested in satisfying your lustful passions and committing sexual sin and fulfilling yourself and, and not just that, but actually committing sexual sin and fulfilling your desires for one night of pleasure with someone else's wife. Wait a minute, how about actually if it's one of your closest friends and a real comrade of yours, a man who you even have a relationship with, how about if you actually have sexual relations with Uriah the Hittite's wife, one of your officers? And, and, and then David, after that, you know, in case she gets pregnant, you might not be able to cover that up. And then how about after that, if you actually then just murder Uriah as an innocent man, and together with his murder, you're probably going to have, you know, maybe a few other people that are going to have to lose their lives as well. So they're going to have to die as innocent victims, which means other families are going to lose their husbands and their fathers. I have to imagine that David would be like, are you kidding me? I would never stoop to that level. I mean, do you follow my line of reasoning that if David would have known on the front side of this where all of the compounding effects ultimately would have led to, I am convinced that David on the front side of that, if he had knew all of those things that he would do as it was undealt with, undealt with, undealt with, undealt with, and the snowball grew and grew and grew, that David would have said, I'll ne I would never stoop to that level. I love God and I love people and, and I would never do something like that. But yet the reality is, incrementally, the devil's deception is very subtle and very slow. And like I said, sin has this compounding effect when it's undealt with. And I assure you, you take any person, whether it be your own life or someone else, who fell into a grievous failure, maybe multiple failures, and you ask them, did you ever think that you would actually do that? And I assure you that I never thought that I would actually do that. I, I could have never envisioned myself doing that. But the reality is the devil has a way of slowly and subtly just reeling in the line quickly and one sin after another and, and that sin and cover that up and then all of a sudden, little by little. And look, this is why, ladies and gentlemen, we should never dismiss little compromises. Oh, I mean, I'm not... I'm, it, it, it's just this little thing. It's just a little flirting at work. Now... Now that's all it is. Oh, well, we're just joking around. Now that's all you're doing. But you leave that unchecked. You, oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, or, or again, and you can take any theoretical situation, not just adultery or sexual sin. I mean, you plug anything into that. It works the same way with everything. Find someone who struggles with substance abuse or ends up becoming a you know, horrible drug addict or someone who has a major drinking problem and ask them, did you wake up one day and just say, you know what, I think today I'm going to decide to become a heroin addict. That's not how that happens. It's just subtly and incrementally the compounding effect of it happens and then it's covered up, it's happened, it's covered up, it's happened, it's covered up and it's not dealt with and not dealt with and not dealt with and little by little the devil just slowly reels in the line. And it's so important for us when we look at this passage of scripture that we never ever be foolish enough to think that we don't have the capacity to do the type of things that David did. Because if you don't believe you don't, I tell you, I know I do. But by the grace of God, there go every one of us.
And even when we do fail, the best thing for us to do is never to try and cover our sin. Proverbs 28 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them. When we sin, we should be the first one to blow the horn on ourselves. It is the best path towards ultimately experiencing recovery out of any kind of mess that we could make. And this cover-up thing did not help in any way. It just caused greater problems and bigger mistakes and failures. And the problem is the Lord is displeased with what David's done. And that's why I look at chapter 12. It opens by saying, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Remember, Nathan was the prophet who often spoke into David's life. And he now is sent by God with a word of rebuke to David. And he came to him and he said to him, there were two men. So he tells David a little parable. There were two men in one city. One was rich. The other was poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and many herds. He had plenty. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. And it ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan tells him this little story, this parable. And he says, David, let me tell you this story. There, there was this man who was wealthy and he had plenty. He had excess he had more than enough to spare, all that he could want and all that he could desire at his, at his fingertips. And then there was this poor man, and he only had one little pet lamb. And, and the rich man had a visitor, a traveler came by, and, and he wanted to prepare a meal for him. And that rich man, when he wanted to prepare a meal for the friend who was visiting that day, rather than take from his own flock to provide fulfillment and address the situation... He went and stole from the poor man the one and only lamb that he had from him and took it away from him. The idea is, is he selfishly stole what belonged to someone else to satisfy his own interests. This is the story. Well, verse 5, as David hears this story, look at David's reaction. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man again this is just a, a story it's not even real but he was greatly aroused he thinks nathan's just seeking his counsel of how to handle a matter that's happened he was greatly aroused with anger and he said to nathan as the lord lives the man who has done this shall surely die now that's a strong reaction last i checked in the law of moses it wasn't a capital crime to steal someone's lamb yeah you had to make restitution but it wasn't a capital crime. David is so angry when he hears about this act of selfishness that David says, that man deserves to die. And on top of it, he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So well, isn't it interesting how as David hears the story of someone else selfishly though they had everything that they could have desired, selfishly taking what belonged to someone else and stealing from someone else what belonged to them to satisfy himself, how strongly David reacts to that in anger. And of course, we know what's going to happen here. Verse 7, Nathan is going to say to David, David, you're that man. You're the man. Because David, that's what you just did. David, you were like that rich man. You had everything at your disposal. You, you had plenty of things to fulfill yourself. You had multiple wives available to you and yet Uriah the Hittite has one wife and you stole the one woman that belonged to him to satisfy your sexual pleasure for one evening. David, you're the one who's done this. Now, here's what's interesting. Do you remember David's reaction towards hearing the story, how angry he is? Isn't it amazing how our sins look so intensely ugly on other people? I mean, isn't it? It's amazing how when we do it, it's, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I stumbled. When someone else did it, I can't believe, I mean, they are the most, 
And it's amazing how strong our, the same sins that are just oopses in our lives, when they happen in somebody else's life, how we are so passionately critical of them. Passionately critical. You know, it's amazing to me how some people can be so passionately critical of other individuals and sometimes I just stand back from a, a distance and I think to myself, oh my goodness. You are so passionately critical of so many things in their life. The reality is you have the most critical spirit I've ever met. And, and it's amazing how we can be so strongly adverse to mistakes in someone else's life or weaknesses and we can see so clearly the sins of other people but a lot of times the reality is the sins that we're most familiar with are the things that we see most clearly that's what happens here with david the very sin that he was guilty of he could see it very clearly in this theoretical story of someone else so in encouragement i always try and remind myself when you find yourself very easy at diagnosing certain sins in other people's lives, it could just be it's because you're very familiar with those sins. And that's the reason that you see them so quickly in other people. So David here, now the reproof comes, David, you are that man. And thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been too little, notice God says, I would have also given you much more. David, I, I, I had already given you so much and I would have even given you more. You didn't have to go and take selfishly what you wanted for yourself. You taking selfishly what you wanted for yourself actually it didn't benefit you. It actually ripped you off because you've now lost opportunity. I would have provided exactly what you were looking for. I would have given you so much more if you would have went about it the right way, God's saying. And again, this is always another horrible consequence of our sinful actions is it leads to a loss of opportunity. Perhaps the things that God says, I would have. Oh, I would have. I would have, but yet we lose at times opportunity as one of the consequences of our own mistakes. I would have given you much more. God says to him, reproving his sin, verse 9, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have, look at God's language, killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So God begins to speak of some of the consequences that are now going to come as the result of David's sin here. And, and notice God very clearly as he speaks into David's life, this word of rebuke, he says to him, David, you've despised the commandment of the Lord. And then verse 10, you've despised me. Yes, these sins, David, have hurt other people, but ultimately these sins are against me, David. You've despised me and you've despised my commandment. And again, th think of this. It's not like these were kind of like gray areas. The Lord very clearly said, thou shalt not commit adultery. David saw the line and he just stepped right over it. The Bible was very clear. The Old Testament law was very clear. Thou shalt not commit murder. David saw the line and he just stepped right over it anyway. It wasn't as if this was a, oops, these were selfish choices in poor decision making that led to David not just harming others, but actually, most importantly, causing offense against the commandment of God and despising the Lord. So he says, David, thus says the Lord, verse 11, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you in your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it, notice, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. And of course, what this is referring to is the consequential effects of David's sin here. And we'll see this in the chapters to come, that even as David committed this sin sexually in secret, Absalom, his own son, in a time of rebellion, we'll see in the chapters ahead, 
will basically set up a tent there in the king's palace and will make it publicly evident that he's going in and defiling all of David's concubines and will basically publicly shame his father and he will be publicly shamed. And you can see as well the description here in verses 9 through 11 that this was going to cause a plague and a problem in David's family relationships. It says the sword will never depart from your house and there's going to be adversity now between you and your family. And we'll see this in the chapters ahead. This leads to a fundamental breakdown in David's family relationships. This was just a natural consequence of these things happening. We'll see it as we go through the chapters ahead, these consequences of David's failure. Now look what happens, verse 13, because this is really the crux of the matter where David comes back to a right place spiritually. Verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's the difference between David and Saul. David ultimately took ownership of what he did. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Now, David understand for a process of time. In fact, I failed to mention and perhaps it would be good to still do such between chapter 11 and chapter 12. There's probably about a nine month to a one year gap. So for about a, a, a season of about a year, David's living in this cover-up. We know that because in chapter 12, we'll get to it next time as we move on in chapter 12, the child has been born that he and Bathsheba conceived together. So we know that there's been about a nine-month to a one-year gap between the time when David sinned and he kept it covered up for about a year. He was playing a cover-up. He was hiding what he did wrong. And I have to say, listen, that had to be a miserable nine months in David's life. A miserable year in David's life as he's trying to hide it. And now David comes to the place where God won't let him be successful, keeping it hidden what he has done. God sends a word of rebuke to him through the prophet. And David wisely responds to the conviction of the Spirit of God. And he now in brokenness confesses and repents before the Lord. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now listen. Every word of that is beautiful. David doesn't say we have sinned. He could have said that. Me and Bathsheba, we have sinned. That's not where David's at. David knows I sinned. I take ownership for what I've done. I did this. It was my fault. I take full responsibility for the guilt of it. David does not care an ounce about whoever participated in the process. And do you want to know why? That's evidence his heart's in the right place. Because someone, when they're truly repentant, all they care about is, I take ownership for what I've done. That's they can tell when somebody's starting to be truly repentant. Because they're not making excuses. He just takes full ownership. I did it. I acknowledge it. I admit it. I own it. And he says, yes, I've hurt other people, but worse, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned. And he calls it what it is, sin. He doesn't make excuses. It was sin. It was wrong. He just takes ownership of it. This is a healthy thing. And when he comes to a place of genuine confession, the word of the Lord comes, look at it, instantaneously, not even a breath. The Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. Right away, instantaneously, the word of the Lord to David as he makes confession of his sin, David, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Listen, adultery and murder were capital crimes according to the Old Testament law. There was no sacrifice. David should have been put to death. But God had mercy upon David and says to him, David, I've put away your sin. I've forgiven you because you've confessed and acknowledged it. You're forgiven. The greater consequence, which is the judgment of God, was alleviated from David's life. And that's what matters most, that we're forgiven. The Bible tells us in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what matters most. Listen, are there going to be consequences? Certainly. You notice the very first verse of verse 14 is, however... David, you're forgiven. However, there would be consequences and more of those consequences are described as the chapter goes on. But listen, the most important consequence, which was the judgment of God against his soul, 
was alleviated. And all he had to do was confess. All he had to do was admit his sin and acknowledge it to God openly. And God instantaneously forgave him because forgiveness is always instantaneously available. Listen, restoration may take time, but forgiveness is instantaneous with God. And all the more because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I I would encourage you, write into your notes of your Bible here, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, because these are the Psalms that David wrote as, as he came to this point in his life in regards to acknowledging his own sin in the things that happened. Let me read you from Psalm 32. It says this as we close. Listen. David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David describes what it was like in that time when he was holding back and the liberation he felt internally when he finally got it off of his chest. And Psalm 51 records the great confession of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit and I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. David also says, Psalm 51, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, listen, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. There was no sacrifice David could bring. Adultery and murder were capital crimes. He couldn't bring a sacrifice to be forgiven. But he said, God, there's no sacrifice to bring. But then he said, I understand it now, Lord. The sacrifice you want is a broken and a contrite spirit. God, if I come to you in brokenness as a man over my sin and acknowledge my sin, God, you'll accept that. And you know what? Listen, tonight, I want to encourage you, if there's something you have not dealt with in your life, all God's looking for is confession and a brokenness and an acknowledgement of it and that you would deal with it biblically and turn from it sincerely and the forgiveness of Jesus and the grace of God and the mercy of the Lord can begin to flow in your life once again. Shall we pray together?